Grab a seat. If you've got a Bible, open to Psalm 119. Psalm 119. If you're a guest with us this morning, we are so glad that you're with us. Um, when you came in the back, there's a little uh, kiosk back there that has some of these connection cards on top of it. If you would do us a favor, if you feel comfortable filling out a little information for us so we can send you information about us, who we are as a church. Uh, promise we won't show up on your doorstep unannounced or uninvited. Uh, but we just want to be able to correspond with you, answer any questions that you may have. If you are a guest with us, my name is Shannon. I'm one of the pastors here at Redeemer. And you're joining us on a Sunday as we open up a brand new series of sermons um, for the rest of this summer, looking at selected psalms and proverbs called Worship and Wisdom. Uh, the Psalms were the ancient worship manual or hymn book for Jesus. Uh, the songs that he sang, the, the, the prayers that he prayed many times um, came directly out of the book of Psalms. And the book of Proverbs is a part of that wisdom collection of material there in the Old Testament that teaches us how to live. And so over the course of these next several weeks, as we make our way through the summer, we're going to be looking at selected psalms and proverbs uh, as we take a look at what it means to worship God and walk wisely. This morning we're taking a look at Psalm 119, and so if you have a copy of the scriptures, go ahead and turn there. Um, the Psalms, a little introduction, Psalms is, is a collection of writings um, by a variety of authors who are attempting to reconcile their reality with their theology through poetry. All right? So they're attempting to reconcile reality, the things that they're seeing and facing on a daily basis, with what they believe to be true about God, their theology, and about life, through the form or the literary genre of poetry. And so much of the Psalms read like poems that are written. And so they're looking out as they cast their eyes around them and they see the, 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 the real life occurrences and events on a daily basis. So you see Psalms like this, they talk about like how long, O Lord? In other words, when will you vindicate the righteous? You've promised to bless the righteous and yet it seems like the righteous are oppressed and persecuted and the wicked are, are, are thriving and flourishing. How long, O Lord? Will this continue to go on? And so the psalmist is looking at reality, and he's thinking about theology, and he's going, this is what we believe to be true about God, but this is what I'm seeing with my eyes. I'm trying to reconcile those two things. So there, as a friend of mine put it recently, the psalms are basically, the authors are inhaling reality, like they're taking it in, and then they're exhaling theology on the pages of Scripture. There's an inhaling of reality and an exhaling of theology. And the Psalms have worked that way from the time that they were written through every generation and age in the, in the church history to this day and age in which we find ourselves this morning. They've worked that way. They've been like, so I don't know about you, but whenever I find myself to be in a very discouraged or dry season, oftentimes the portions of Scripture that I open up first is I open up to the book of the Psalms. As I think about, here's my reality, right? This doesn't seem to be what God has promised. Here's my reality. Here's my theology. Trying to reconcile those two things, and you find nourishment, and you find, um, a, 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 you find, you find water, living water in these psalms, in these, in these ancient words for dry and weary souls in our day and time as well. And so Psalm 119 is where we're going to camp out this morning. Uh, it's only 176 verses, and so I hope you don't have anything on your calendar until about 10 a.m. tomorrow. <laughs> some of you are laughing, some of you are not. <laughs> I don't blame you. Uh, but we're, we're not going to take a look at all 176 verses. We're going to take a look at selected so uh, verses out of Psalm 119 uh, as we take a look at 
at, at, at what the psalmist says about the goodness of the word of God. The goodness of the word of God. In the late 17th century, a Puritan pastor named Stephen Sharnock said this about the Bible. He said, prize and study the scripture. We can have no delight in meditation on him, speaking of God, unless we know him. And we cannot know him but by the means of his own revelation. When the revelation is despised, the revealer will be of little esteem. Men do not throw off God from being their rule till they throw off Scripture from being their guide. And God must necessarily be cast off from being an end when Scripture is rejected from being a rule. Love the way that he says that. He says people don't throw off God as their ultimate source of authority until they throw off Scripture as being their guide to God and about God and who he is and what he has said and what he's revealed about himself in his word. And so throughout every era of history, there have been attempts by individuals uh, like you and I to cast off God as our rule by casting off the scriptures as our guide. Throughout history, there have been certain eras where the scriptures have been called into question. A little history lesson for you this morning before we actually get into the text. Uh, Many of you know about the period of history known as the Reformation, in which there were reformers within the Roman Catholic Church who sought to bring the church back to her roots, back to the Bible. And whenever they failed at that, they stepped outside of the Roman Catholic Church and began to, 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 to preach and teach and other denominations were formed. But in the Reformation, the, the, thing, the thing that was called into question in the Reformation by the Reformers was this. Is the Bible enough? Is it sufficient? Because for, for, for up, up to that point in history, the Roman Catholic Church had grown to such a point where they had begun to elevate the traditions and teachings of the popes on par with Scripture. And so it wasn't like Scripture tradition here. It was more like Scripture and tradition like this on equal playing fields. And so they elevated tradition to the point of Scripture and actually oftentimes above Scripture to where the way that they interpreted Scripture was through the traditions and teachings of the popes. And so they sought to cast off God as their rule by casting off the Scriptures as their God because they didn't see the Bible as being sufficient and it wasn't enough. And so the Reformers came along and said, no, the hierarchy is not tradition, Scripture, but it's Scripture, tradition, and teaching. So they tried to reverse those two things. On the heels of the Reformation, you entered into an era of history known by historians as the Enlightenment. And during the Enlightenment, the issue wasn't necessarily tradition, but the issue became reason. It was the highest source of authority. And so everything uh, had to be measurable by empirical data. You had to be able to, to measure it, touch, taste, see, and feel it with your senses in order for it to be true, in order for it to be valid, in order for it to be real. During the Enlightenment, right, it wasn't tradition that got elevated up above Scripture, but reason got elevated above Scripture. So as a result, during the Enlightenment, the Bible was handled and was chopped up just like every other piece of literature. And everything that had even the tinge of supernatural to it was at best dismissed, at worst outright rejected. And so during the Enlightenment, the hierarchy of authority was reason, Scripture, tradition. Reason was at the, at the top of the totem pole during the Enlightenment. So in the, in the Reformation, it was, is the Bible enough? In, in, in the Enlightenment, the, the church had to defend the fact that the Bible was true. 
But in our day and age, there are still those who would seek to cast off God as their rule by casting off the scriptures as their guide, not by saying the Bible isn't enough, not by saying the Bible even isn't true, but by calling into question not the truthfulness or the sufficiency of the Bible, but by calling into question its goodness. Is it good? You see, what's happened in our day is there's been a shift from reason being the highest source of authority for us to experience being the highest source of authority for us. Experience is now at the top of the totem pole, and anything within the scriptures that don't fall in line with my experience, I I, I dismiss it best and outright reject at worst. See, in the previous generation, the attack on God's revelation was an, a rational one, an intellectual one. In this generation, in our day and time, it is more of an emotional one. Because I don't feel that's right. I don't feel that to be good. I don't feel that to be authentic or in line with who I am. In fact, there are many self-identifying Christians who may have very strong convictions that the Bible is true, but they may call into question its goodness at certain places, in certain times, and in certain aspects of human life. They have their doubts about whether the vision the Bible presents for human flourishing is actually a good one. Is actually a good one. So for instance, for instance, they may ask questions like, is the vision that for life presented in the scriptures really better than the competing alternatives? Is it better and more beautiful to walk in sexual purity than to have as the highest aim of my life momentary pleasure outside of any lasting covenant relationship? There are those who would ask, is it really better to be humble, selfless, and sacrificially serve those who want to kill me rather than seeking prideful um, selfish and violent revenge upon them. And may ask the question, is it, really, is it really better to be open-handed and generous with all that I have rather than closed-handed and greedy, trying to consume and acquire more? Is it really better to have a mother and a father than two moms or two dads? Is it really better to keep your child at the age of 13 from having a sex change surgery because their insides don't, they don't feel like their outsides match their insides. Is that really a good thing to do? Is it really better to carry to term an unexpected pregnancy than to terminate it, the child in the womb? Is it, be, is it really better, right? See, the question in our age isn't necessarily, is it true, but is it good? Does it produce flourishing and life? Does it give freedom and joy? That's the, that's, that's the question of our day. That's the question of our age. Is it really better to be under authority than to have absolute autonomy and be able to do whatever I want? Is accountability really better than any kind of unrestrained freedom that we might be seeking to enjoy? Is it really better to go out and spend $500 on a Yeti ice chest or to actually give and support the ministries of your local church? Is it better? Is it better to guard your heart from falling for a young man or young woman who is not a Christian than to give it to anyone who walks in the room and happens to be attractive and nice? Are these things really better? Is it good? That's the question of our day. That's the question of our day. 
In the Reformation, it was, is the Bible sufficient? In the Enlightenment, it was, is the Bible true? In our day, it is, is the Bible good? See, that's the air that we're inhaling of reality, of the culture in which we live. The air that you're inhaling is this questioning of the goodness of the Bible. Maybe some of you in here this morning are actually find yourself in that position where you're inhaling that reality of the water that you're swimming in, the oxygen that you're breathing. You're inhaling the reality of this questioning the goodness of the Scriptures. And what we need to do this morning is exhale this psalm together. We need to exhale this psalm together. And so that's what we want to do together today. Psalm 119 is where we're going to be. And before we actually jump into uh, a, a, one of, the, one of the, 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 the verses in there, I want to kind of set it up for you, what's going on in this psalm. So what is the psalmist talking about in Psalm 119? Here's what he's talking about. He's talking about every brushstroke of the Bible. Every brushstroke of the Bible. Uh, in the, 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 the Four Corners region of the American Southwest of our nation, there is a uh, a massive sprawling thousands upon thousands upon thousands of acres of these magnificent geological formations known as the Painted Desert. The Painted Desert. Uh, here's, here's an image of, of what one of those geological formations looks like. And it looks like somebody's come along with a big, with a massive paintbrush and just striped those geologic formations, those rock faces as they rise above the desert floor. It looks like somebody has just painted them with all variations of colors. There are other images that you might look at, or if you walk that, 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 that territory, you'd see that there are some broad brushstrokes, there are some fine brushstrokes, but it looks like a painting. It looks like a painting, like somebody has taken brushes and striped it. It's amazing. It's like the hand of God as he superintended and oversaw creation, said, this is going to just be one of those massive, monumental, beautiful works of my hands. And in the same way that you look at this rock face and you see all of its brush strokes, or you might look at a fine piece of art that a man has created, and you might see the brush strokes on the canvas, so also the Bible is filled with brush strokes. Brush strokes. And in this text, there's at least eight of those that the psalmist surfaces for us. So there's at least these eight broad brushstrokes in the Bible as he talks about God's word with a variety of terms. Variety of terms. The first one we'll mention is this. He talks about in, in, in eight different terms. He says, he talks about the law of God. Number one, the law of God. And whenever he talks about the law of God in Psalm 119, this word can be used of a single command in the Bible, but it can also be used of a whole body of the law. In other words, looking back to Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament where the law is given. It could be a single command, that whole body of the law, or it could take into encompass the entire scripture as a whole. Whenever it's used in the, psalm, in the Psalms, its root word means to direct or to teach. In other words, to instruct someone with something. It reminds us that Scripture is not merely given for our interest, but for our obedience. That God's teaching us, He's instructing us, He's directing us in how we ought to order our lives and live. Right? So the Bible's not given just so that like, little kids can win Bible drill contests in Awanas. Right? The Bible is given to teach us how to walk, to teach us how to live. Second of all, he talks about the testimonies of God. 
the testimonies of God. And this word refers to the scriptures as a witness to and to testify about God's faithfulness and his severity. In other words, you look back on the stories in the Old Testament and you see how God has acted on behalf of his people. And it draws you in to this enjoyment of this great glorious God who has shown himself to be faithful over the course of human history. But it also, when you see his testimonies and it witnesses to his actions in history, it also does this. It also warns us. It woos us, right? It like draws us to him. How can we not come under this great and glorious and good God? But it also warns us of what life looks like whenever you spurn, reject, and walk away from him as he deals severely with his people in their rebellion. So his testimonies. Third, his precepts. The root word here is related to an officer assigned to give oversight to the details of a particular operation and to act as needed. In other words, it reminds us that there is nothing that escapes God's attention. There's no detail of importance in our life that's left unaddressed by a thorough application of what God has revealed. So in other words, God's not just concerned about the big brushstrokes, but the fine ones as well. All the details of our lives. Fourth, his statutes. This word speaks of the permanence of Scripture as something inscribed and engraved. It reminds us that there is no expiration date on God's revelation. Right? It's not like milk sitting in the fridge and eventually you've got to throw it out and start over. There's no expiration date on it. God does not change like the shifting shadows as James tells us in chapter 1. And neither does his revelation. Fifth, his commandments. This word speaks to the authority of God to give orders, not merely to persuade us to act in a particular way or convince us, but it speaks to his authority to issue commands that are right and just and true as the great king of all creation because he is the one who has brought us into being and has the, is the one who has the right to determine the purpose for which we should live. His commandments. His ordinances, number six, this word speaks to the horizontal dimension of relationships between image bearers of God, between other men and women, between you and I. God's ordinances. In other words, with the duties and demands of being a good neighbor or a good boss, a good employee, a good mom or a good dad, a good son or a good daughter. It speaks to the, the horizontal dynamic of what God has ordained to be right in relation to our other the rest of humanity, to other men and women in our lives. Number seven, the psalmist speaks of God's word. This is kind of like a junk drawer term, okay? Uh, I remember growing up, uh, my, my parents had what they called affectionately, they both had a junk drawer, right? Where just, everything just kind of got piled in there, right? And this is kind of a junk drawer term when speaking of the Bible, because every, it just kind of encompasses all these others are brought up underneath its umbrella or in its drawer. If any aspect of God's revelation, either those things he commands of us or those things that he's promised to fulfill for us. And then finally, number eight, it speaks of his promises in Psalm 119. This term speaks to those things that God has pledged to do on behalf of his people. The things that God would fulfill. The ways in which God would act. The things that God would come through on. It reminds us that at the end of the day, God is the one who will act on our behalf. And we are absolutely and utterly dependent upon him. That's what Psalm 119 is about. The word of God. Every brush stroke of the Bible. 
But I want you to notice, right, we're inhaling, we're inhaling these questions of the goodness of God's revelation. But I want you to notice how the psalmist exhales here. Because in Psalm 119, as he exhales theology into the face of reality, he speaks of the Bible, of, the, of God's word. He speaks of it as being bright and better and sweeter and wonderful. Of bright, better, sweeter, and wonderful. If you look in verse 105, Psalm 119, 105, the psalmist writes these words. He says, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. It's a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Now the image that he uses here, it presupposes that you are going somewhere and not remaining static. In other words, that you're moving in a particular direction and not just sitting still. That you're on a journey and you're not just plopped down on the couch watching somebody else's journey. See, the light, the lamp that the psalmist refers to, he says it's a bright light. It illumines the path in which you should walk. Right? Listen, there's no one in this room and there's no one in the, over the course of human history save Jesus who is ever going to earn the favor of God by being perfect in obedience to his word. But God has graciously given us his word in order that we might know how to walk. And whenever you see those terms of, of, of your feet being placed on a particular path and of walking in the scriptures, it is referring to almost exclusively when it's used in that metaphorical sense, it's referring to the manner in which you and I live. The manner in which you and I live. So God has given us a lamp, a light to illumine the path upon which we should walk that he might show us how to live. So the word of God has not been given for us just to sunbathe in, but to walk by. Now listen, it is summer, right? And there's many of us who love going out to the pool and hanging out. We were out there Friday, and I think I stayed out there a little bit too long. <laughs> Um, when, I, when, I, when I got home and got cleaned up and we were ready to go uh, hang out with some friends Friday night, I got out of the shower and I looked in the mirror and I looked like a boiled crawfish. Like I put on sunscreen and I reapplied, man, but I was out there, we were out there for about three hours with our kids and our kids are like fish in the water, they just love to swim. And they're getting to an age now where they can kind of be more independent in the water. And so we kind of hang out on the side sometimes and watch them swim, always kind of keeping a watchful eye on them. But as I was just hanging out there, just soaking up some vitamin D, right, I was sunbathing in that light, basking in it. And I ended up being boiling myself. And there are some of us who approach the Bible the same way. We think the Bible is just like the, the lounge chair next to the pool that we get to sit in and just bask in the light. We're going to sunbathe in the light. We're going to absorb all of the Bible. But the Bible wasn't given necessarily to be the light. Your tan it wasn't given to be your tanning bed. <laughs> it was given to be your flashlight on a very dark and thorny path to show you how to walk, how to live. See, there are those of us who spend, we might spend our mornings reading God's Word. We might spend our evenings reading God's Word. But the question isn't, do I, how much time, well, that's a part of the question, no, but that's not the only question. How much time am I immersed in the Scriptures, but what am I doing with what God is saying and showing? Am I actually conforming my feet to the path that He has lined out for me as I seek to live? The Bible is bright and it gives light for how we should live how we should walk, what we should do. It's good. 
The psalmist also says, not only is it bright, but he says it's better. Look in verse 72. He says, the law of your mouth is better to me than thousands of gold and silver pieces. The law of your mouth is better to me than thousands of gold and silver pieces. Listen, in the psalmist's time, thousands of gold and silver pieces would have made them a part of the upper crust of their society. They'd been in the top like 0.5%. They'd have been up there. And the psalmist says, the, the word of God, the testimonies of God, the law of God, the commands of God, the statutes of God, God's word to me is preferable It's preferable to having high standing in society and to having stockpiles of wealth. Listen, let me, let me kind of draw it into a modern day analogy. A couple of months ago, like the whole nation lit up with this feeding frenzy on lottery tickets, right? Because the, the, the mega jackpot had risen to like 1.2 billion or 1.4 billion dollars, like massive amounts of money. So you got like fifth cousins calling all their cousins going, man, we got to pull all our money and buy lottery tickets. We're going to win the jackpot, split it five ways, and we're all going to be rich and be able to retire on our own private island with our own submarines that people can't even see us coming and going. It's going to be amazing. Right? There's a feeding frenzy on lottery tickets. But let me ask you this question. Let me ask you this question. Is, the, is God's word, is it better to you than the one lottery ticket with all the numbers, including the Powerball? It would have won you $1.4 billion all to yourself. Is it better Is it preferable? Would you forsake all worldly goods and possessions, all standing in society in the upper crust to have the very revelation of God himself? That's what the psalmist is saying. He's saying God's word is better. Do you believe that? Do you believe that it was given to you to walk by Do you believe that it's preferable to all worldly riches? Not only is it bright and better, but it's also, he says, sweeter. Look at what he says in verse 103 of Psalm 119. He says, how sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Sweeter to honey and honey to my mouth. Listen, have you ever walking through the grocery store and you've seen those little jugs with a little bear with a little orange sticker on his tummy, like local raw honey? And the psalmist says, no matter how pure and unrefined your organic local honey is, and no matter how sweet it is on your tongue, he says the word of God is sweeter. It tastes better. It tastes better. Listen, let me, let me, let me go ahead and, and, and drop this on you, right? Uh, Ham's Peaches Orchard, right? Just opened about a month and a half ago, right? Mid, uh, mid-May, about a month ago, right? But listen, the, the time that my family waits for to go to Ham's is like the first couple of weeks of July. Why? Because the freestone peaches are ripe and they are sweet and they are delicious, 
If you've never been, listen, if you've never been to Hams, like just, I might even tell you to get up now and just go. It's so good. The peaches are so good. They're so tasty. But listen, the question is the sweetest fruit on the face of the earth, the most savory meal that you've ever had, the most expensive wedding cake that you have ever tasted with your lips and your tongue. The psalmist says the word of God is sweeter. It's to be savored above all those things. And he says, I do. I do. It's like nourishment for my soul. Do you believe that? Do you believe that if you were stripped of all your worldly possessions, and do you believe that if you had to eat ramen noodles for the rest of your life, <laughs> that you would be better off having God's revelation, this, these words? That's what the psalmist is saying. Finally, in the text, he also says, not only is it bright, better, sweeter, and, but he also says, it is wonderful. It, it blows my mind in verse 129, when he says, your testimonies are wonderful, therefore my soul keeps them. The psalmist says, it's so wonderful. The testimonies, remember the testimonies of God? They were, the, they were the, 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 the witness of God's action in history as he blessed in his faithfulness and as he cursed at times in his severity because of his people's rebellion. In other words, he woos us and he warns us through his testimonies. Do you stand back from the word of God whenever you read it and go, the things that God has done in the past, they, they, they're, they're be, they blow my mind a little bit. I can't wrap my mind fully around them. I just know that they're wonderful. And it is wonderful for God to show me how faithful he has been to his people throughout the ages, but it is also wonderful for God to warn me about what it looks like to spurn him, reject him, and walk away from him. It is wonderful for God to woo me. We would all say that. Yes, we want to bask in the love of God. But is it wonderful for God to warn you as well? He says it is wonderful. His testimonies are wonderful. Therefore, my soul keeps them. I want to walk in them. I want to respond to them. So that every brushstroke of the Bible is being celebrated in the psalm. And he says, they're bright for your feet to walk. They're better than all the earthly riches that you could possibly conceive of or imagine. It is sweeter than the most delectable delicacy that you could ever taste with your tongue. And there is incredibly wonderful and awe-inspiring that God would show us how faithful he has been, but also how severe it can be to walk away from him. That's how he speaks about the Bible. But what keeps us from speaking about it that way? I don't know about you, but I've found in my experience at times that I can read this and I can go, you know what, intellectually that makes sense to me, but I don't feel that way right now. I don't feel that way right now. So what keeps us from feeling these things the psalmist is feeling about the Bible? And in, in every generation, it might be a little bit of a different twist on this, but I think in our generation, it is this. In our day, in our time, in our age, in this era, what keeps us from seeing and savoring and saying it's bright, it's better, it's beautiful, it's sweet, it's wonderful, what keeps us from that? is what I would call the sovereignty of our feelings. 
the rule in our hearts of our emotions and our feelings. Because what has happened in this age, I'm going to break it down for you. What has happened in this age is there has been an exaltation. In other words, something has risen to the place of authority in our lives that is not God's external revelation. God's revealed something outside and apart from us. He has spoken in his word. There's external revelation. But what has happened in our day and time is our internal sensations have risen above God's external revelation. So what has the ultimate authority in our lives is not what God has said, but how we feel. How we feel. And so we would, anything that goes against, anything that rubs against how we feel, right, our disposition is to trust what we feel internally rather than what God has said externally. And so what we do, rather than rejoicing in the word of God, is we reject it. We reject it because it doesn't, it doesn't align with how we feel inside about particular issues. It doesn't align with how we feel inside about the things that we desire or the things that we want. And so we would rather sit in judgment over God's external revelation rather than be judged by it and sit underneath it and let it convict us and surface things in our hearts and our souls and our lives that are not God's best, that are not good for us. We would rather sit in judgment over it rather than be judged by it because our internal sensations have risen above God's external revelation. And so whenever those things come into conflict, what we do, rather than saying, you know what, God has spoken, I'm going to conform, I'm going to seek by God's grace through much prayer, through accountability, through, through being a part of Christian community, through worship, I'm going to seek to, conf- to, to bring about this conformity to the image of Jesus Christ in my life, where I'm going to hand over those desires and those feelings to God, knowing that they're in contradiction to his external revelation. Rather, what we would do is we would say, these are my internal sensations. They are my true guide. And so I must conform the external revelation to meet my internal sensations. So I must, I must alter what God has said to make it align with how I feel. And so whenever we find ourselves in that position, we are not saying, yes, it tastes sweet to me. Yes, it is better than much fine gold. Yes, it is wonderful that God would woo me and warm me. Yes, yes, it is bright and shows me how to walk. Whenever the, when the, when the, our feelings become sovereign and authoritative in our lives, what happens is we look at the God's word and we say, that is not bright, it's not a light, it's dark to me. We say, it's not sweet, it is bitter to my taste. We say, I, there, there are these other things that I would prefer rather than God's word. And it is not very wonderful or awe-inspiring in my life. Because what I feel becomes my ultimate source of authority. As a result, we, we reject those parts of the Bible that run against the grain of our natural makeup and what our hearts are longing for apart from God. Listen, this is, you, know, you know this to be true of your own self because you know it to be true of your children, don't you? <laughs> Those of you who are parents. Listen, every one of you as a parent, you know that somewhere deep inside, your child is a little tyrant. Like, there really is. 
Uh, you, you, let me show you. Like you, you get two kids together, right? Who have uh, you know come over for a play date, right? This happens at our house sometimes. They come over for a play date. They're all hanging out in the playroom. They're outside playing on the monkey bars and a little playset in the backyard. They're outside in the front, and inevitably you have two competing visions for what these four hours of the play date are going to look like, right? You got child A. Who says, I have a slate of games that we're going to play together. And child B has their own idea of what games they want to play. Their own slate of games. Right? And inside, so in, within their internal conflict within those little small children of four, five, six, seven years of age, they, they, they like run roughshod over their friends because they're like, they won't play with me. Right? I, I hear this sometimes from my kids. You're not yours. Yours are great. But mine will come to me and they will say things like, they won't play with me. Well, why not? Because they won't play what I want them to play. Really? You ever thought maybe you should play what they want to play sometimes? So we have this, trying to have this rational conversation with like a five-year-old and all the wheels just come off. You've been there, many of you, right? Because inside all of us, no matter how old we are, there's still a little tyrant in there who says, I want to do things my way or no way. And anything that would rub against the way that I feel, I would reject. That's the reality of our human condition. So this morning as we close, I want to briefly share a couple of application points with you out of this and talk to you about how should we respond how should we respond to the word of God, which the, the psalmist paints as, a, as, as good? Exhale this theology. How should we respond? And it's up on the screen already, that you should rejoice over rather than reject the word of God. Listen, Jesus teaches us that our words reveal our character and the condition of our hearts. In Matthew chapter 12, verse 34, he speaks of the mouth speaking out of the overflow of the heart. Listen, if that's true for you and I, I also believe that it's true for the one who has made us. I believe that it is true that whenever God speaks, he's not just issuing edicts and commands. He's revealing his character. He's revealing his heart. That the the word of God reveals the heart of God for his people. And so when God speaks, he's not just issuing edicts, he's revealing his heart. That's why the psalmist, I think, in verse 68 of Psalm 119, he says, You are good and do good. God, you are good and do good. So because of that, would you teach me your statutes, those things which never change, which are inscribed and engraved forever, which do not shift like the shadows. Would you teach me those things because you are good and do good. You do good to us, God. You show us how to live. You show us what your heart is for us, that it beats for your people. And listen, no matter how strong that little tyrant is within you, if I tell you, if I stand before you and tell you, or God were to stand, Jesus were to stand before you and tell you this, that there is one who exists. There is a a God who exists that is good, benevolent, loving, just, and all-wise, who has made us and was merciful to us in our weaknesses. And this God has revealed himself in various ways and various times, but most fully has revealed himself through the word incarnate, which is Jesus Christ, and the word inscribed, which is the Holy Scriptures. 
That he has spoken and shown himself. He's shown his heart. He's shown his goodness. He's shown his glory. He's shown his wisdom. He's shown his love. He's shown his mercy. He has showered his compassion through his word. If there is one who exists who is good, loving, kind, benevolent, wise, and just, who has shown, who has shown his love for you through the sending of his son and the giving of his word, why would you not Listen and embrace and rejoice over because in his speaking, he is revealing his heart toward you. He's revealing his heart toward you. And the psalmist says, when you, when, 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 when you say you are good and you do good, therefore teach me your statutes, there can only be one of two responses to the word of God. You can either rejoice over it or you can reject it. I want you to notice, there's, I want you to go back this afternoon. Some of you are like, well, I'm not going back this afternoon. Tomorrow, this week sometime, and read all of Psalm 119. And what I want you to notice as you read all of Psalm 119 is there's not a category the psalmist uses for the mere reception of God's word as if just giving intellectual assent to it is what God desires. There's no category for just receiving the word of God. In the, in, the, in the text, it's either you rejoice over God's word, that you celebrate it, that you enjoy it, that you, that you feast on it, or you reject it. It's one of the two. Throughout the psalm, the psalmist says, uh, he, he, ten times he speaks of delighting in the word of God, twice of rejoicing in it, once of it bringing joy. In 162, he says, I rejoice at your word like one who finds great spoil. In other words, as you're digging through the trash of a garage sale, right? That's what mine is anyway. Some of yours might not be trash. But if I had a garage sale, it would be a bunch of junk sitting out there in the garage. So you're digging through that, and all of a sudden you come across this priceless, something that's priceless. And your heart, you ever, you ever experience that whenever you, like, something good happens to you? Your heart just kind of flutters, kind of flutters in your chest. And the says, in the same way as someone who finds a great treasure, a great spoil, that their heart rejoices, it leaps in their chest. So also, that's how my heart responds to your word. It rejoices over it. The only other alternative in the psalm is to reject it. He says the wicked, on the other hand, they don't seek it in 155. They forget it in 139. They are far from it in 150. They forsake it in 53. The word of God um, is, is they, don't, they don't keep the law of God in 136 and 158. So there's rejoicing over it or there's rejecting it. So the question becomes for us, how do you rejoice over it? Let me mention to you three things. And then we're done. First of all, you set it before yourself consistently. You set it before yourself consistently. Have you ever, have you ever um, thought, you know what, you know what, man, I, I know that I, in order to stay healthy, I've got to eat three times a day. Some of us are like, well, if I want to stay healthy, I've got to eat like seven times a day. But three times a day, I've got to have like some, some meals, some food, some nourishment that goes into my body. So none of us walk around going, you know what, I'm just going to, I'm not going to eat. I'm just going to waste away to nothing and die. But whenever we come to God's word, many of us have that, that approach to the Bible. So we don't set it before ourselves consistently in the same way that we would a meal that we would set before us consistently. Some of you are like, I want to set one before me right now. And I wish you would stop talking. But, what, <laughs> but set it before yourself consistently. 
So that, that means in the mornings are the best time for you, at lunchtime is the best time for you, and the evenings are the best time for you. Maybe you would carve it out amongst all three of those, and you would spend 30 minutes in the morning, 20 minutes at lunch, and 10 minutes in the evening, or flip it around, 10 minutes in the morning if you're not a morning person, 20 minutes at lunch, and 30 minutes in the evening, but you would be in the Word of God and reading it. You set it before yourself consistently. Because when you rejoice in something, right, your mind is, is drawn to it. It gravitates towards it. Some of you are that way with your hobbies. You rejoice over your hobbies. And so what do you do? In your downtime, your mind, where does it run? It, that's where it runs. It runs to your hobbies. So you set it before yourself consistently. You memorize it. You meditate on it. You chew it like a cow chewing its cud. And you swallow it. And you throw it back up in your mind. You chew on it some more. And you swallow it back down until it becomes internalized. So that it becomes something that you're not just sunbathing in, but that you're walking by its light. So you set it before yourself consistently. Second of all, you walk in it. You walk in it. Listen, how do you know if you're rejoicing in the Word of God? Let me give you a good benchmark. Here's, how, here's one way that you know. Obedience always follows joy. Obedience always follows joy. When you're excited about something... When, you're, when, when there's joy bursting in your heart about something, right? you, 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 you just do it because you enjoy it. And the same is true with God's word. One of the ways that you know if you're actually rejoicing in it as opposed to just that unbiblical category of receiving it. Some of you have just received it, but you're not rejoicing in it because there's no obedience that's the output of that. Because obedience always follows joy. So a question for you, where are you rejecting the word of God rather than rejoicing over it? I didn't, I'm not talking about receiving it, I'm talking about rejoicing over it. Where are you rejoicing over it and where are you rejecting it right now in your life? See, my hope is that God would put his thumb on some of our hearts right now and he begin to show us areas in which we have rejected God's word and are not rejoicing over it so that we might walk in its light. And then finally, finally, Ask God for help. Ask God for help. I find it incredibly encouraging that even one of the authors of the Bible in Psalm 119 verse 18 writes these words. He says, open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. Even one of the guys who wrote the Bible goes, I need God. I need God to help me. Because apart from him, I can't see anything in there. Apart from him, it's not beautiful to me. Apart from him, it's not better. It doesn't taste sweet. Apart from him, it's not bright. It's all a dark cave to me. It's not a flashlight by which I walk. So he petitions God. He prays to God. He gets on his knees and says, God, would you help me? Would you open my eyes? Because apart from you, I can't see those things. All I see is black typeface on white pages. But over and over and over again throughout the psalm, he says, he says, let me, let me see this. Let me walk in your ways. Let me. It's, a, it's like continual prayers and petitions for God to do and empower what only God can do. And some of us need to do that right now. This morning as we close together in song, what you need to do is you need to ask God, God, would you help me? I, I don't see these things for myself. If you're not a Christian here this morning, that's the very first step is going, God, I don't see 
what they're talking about. I don't see, I'm not, I, I can't see those things. Would you open my eyes to see them? I want to see them, God. I want to see them. Would you help me see them? And if you will pray that prayer, and God has placed that desire in your heart, and you will pray that prayer, I believe that he will answer it. And he will open your eyes to see the wonders of his word. Another exercise for you when you go home is this. Read through Psalm 119 and just look at all the places the psalmist prays. Look at what he prays for. Look at what he prays for and then do this. Compare that to your prayers. Compare that to your prayers. And then begin to pray. Begin to ask God for the things the psalmist is asking for. Because he delights to answer those. And he will. So make this summer a summer in which you rejoice over rather than rejecting the word of God in your life. Would you pray with me? Father, we come this morning. And God, I I, I know there may be folks in here who have never seen the wonders and the beauty of your word. There may be people in this room this morning who have never beheld the majesty and glory of your counsels and your law. They look at your testimonies and your warnings and they think them to be too severe, but not a loving demonstration of your heart, of what life looks like whenever it's lived outside of your vision for what you've created us to be and the purpose that you've given us. God, would you open their eyes? If there are folks in the room this morning, God, who are not Christians, I pray you open their eyes to see the beauty of Jesus Christ. To see him on every page of the Bible. To see their need for him and dependence. And that apart from him it's just black type on white page. That your spirit would awaken and illumine their hearts and minds. Father, for those of us who are Christians, I pray that we would become a church that is known for rejoicing over your word by obeying it. And not just a church that tries to sunbathe in it. But Father, we need you for it. Would would you help us set it before ourselves consistently with a plan and a time and a space? Would you help us to walk in it and obey it? And Father, would you help us to get on our knees and cry out to you for help? We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.